I want to ask you a quick question. Who's had a perfect week where nothing has gone wrong? There's been no problems. You've made no mistakes or errors. Everything's gone smoothly. One person. You've had a perfect week. Has it been brilliant? No. Not really. We're hoping. We don't often get a perfect week, do we? In fact, has anyone ever had a perfect week in the whole of their lives? Oh, one person. Okay. Not very often. Often our weeks are a little bit messy, a little bit jumbled, a little bit full of things we wish we hadn't said or done, a little bit full of things that have happened that we wish hadn't happened. There's highlights, there's lowlights, and things are just life, aren't they? And we arrive here sometimes feeling ready, but more often than not probably just feeling that we're glad to be here because we've got here and we're dressed, hopefully, in all the right clothes. So we're going to pause before we begin. We're going to come before a God who knows what's going on in our lives, who understands why these things are going on, and who welcomes us and accepts us exactly the way we are. As we often do in this church, we're just going to pause. I invite you, if you'd like to, to put the palms of your hands on your knees as you think about all the things that have gone on this week. Good, bad, jumbled, messy. And then in a moment, I'll invite you just to lift your palms up as we offer our lives to God at the beginning of this service. So just a moment of quiet as we bring to mind the things we've been involved in this week. Quite a few weeks ago, we began a series. Well, I didn't actually begin it because I was away. Gave it to the visiting speaker. So they began a series on, well, they started with the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Matthew. And there are four women, well, five, including Mary, but four women within that that genealogy. And we are going to focus on those women as we lead up to Christmas, as we go through Advent, and as we look towards the coming of Jesus. And the first one, the first lady in that genealogy, if we go down from the top, is a woman called Tamar. And Rob's going to come and read her story. The reading is from Genesis chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. Then she gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, 
he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realising that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time gave to time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and was given the name Zera.
Do you know um, the definition of a saga is a long, involved story or account of several incidents. A long, complicated series of related, usually negative events. Not to be confused, I found out, with saga holidays, although, you know, or sagaloo, as um, Google tends to throw up when you try and find the definition of a saga. The term was originally um, came into being because it was told about long stories in Scandinavian history. But it's now used, of course, in a number of different settings for many long-drawn-out, complicated, sometimes negative events. It's a term that I guess we could apply to many things today, maybe. Both very serious and light-hearted and fictional. For instance, there is the saga of, dare I mention... Brexit. I think that would fit into saga quite well. Long, drawn-out series of complicated, often negative events. There's a saga of Syria and the Middle East. There's a saga of the refugee crisis. But there's also the saga of neighbours. Long, drawn-out series of events. EastEnders, Coronation Street, any of the above could fit into the saga category. And of course, the saga that continues to be Donald Trump. In general, from his appearance in Home Alone 2, way back in the day, to his status as possibly the most powerful man in the world. Still can't believe that. And now his impeachment hearings. A saga, I do believe. I guess if we're alive today, we would know or have some idea of what a saga is. And so when we read the story of Tamar and Judah, which appears quite unexpectedly in the book of Genesis, in between Joseph's being sold into slavery by his brothers and then his subsequent life in Egypt, we become aware almost straight away that this story is a saga. It begins, of course, with Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, an older brother of Joseph, having sold his brother into slavery, going off to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Or, if you like, going away from home to begin a new life in a new place. And it's here in Adullam that Judah meets his wife. They're married and they have three sons, Ur, Onan and Shelah. Ur, of course, is the firstborn son of Judah. So his marriage is arranged to a girl called Tamar. Now, at this point, all is fairly normal. There's no sign of a saga. There's no sign of trauma. No dramatic events have taken place. Judah seems to have escaped the story of selling his brother into slavery and moved on with his life. And he's now started his own family. He's settling down in a new place. He's arranged a marriage for his eldest son and he's looking forward to grandchildren and a long and happy life. But then, whether by wrong actions or consequences of his actions or other things like illnesses, we're not really sure, Ur, the eldest son of Judah, dies without having any children leaving Tamar, his wife, in need of help, in need of care and support. The culture of the day dictated that if this kind of thing happened, then Judah would offer the brother of Ur, 
to Tamar to carry on the family line, enabling her to bear children with him, children who would hold Ur's name and would look after her in later life. It was a normal way of living. It was later written in the laws in the book of Deuteronomy that this is what should happen. And so this is what Judah does, telling Onan to sleep with his brother's wife and fulfill his duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for his brother. And in many ways, this is where the saga begins. Onan, of course, obeys his father because you obey your father. He's happy to sleep with Tamar, but he does not want to have children with her. And so due to his actions, he too dies. And at this, Judah, having lost two sons, becomes scared. He sees that Tamar is a widow. He sees that she's still in need of care, that she's in need of love, that she's in need of children to enable her to live a full life within their society rather than one that restricts her to the outskirts of the community. And yet, because of his fear, because he fears losing yet another son, he refuses to ask Shelah to do what Ur couldn't and Onan wouldn't. And telling Tamar he will give Shelah to her when he grows up, he sends her back to her father to live there instead, condemning her to a life of widowhood, reliant on the care of others. Now, following this, for a while, everything seems calm. Tamar is back with her father. Judah is with his wife. All is okay. But then, after a long time, Judah's wife dies, leaving him all alone, apart from his one son, who he couldn't let go. And it's at this point that Tamar comes up with her plan. Now, by all accounts, looking at this today, it's not a great plan, really. Because having realised that Judah has no intention of giving his youngest son to her, she decides that what she's going to do is dress up as a prostitute, lure her father-in-law to sleep with her, become pregnant by him, so that she will then have children who can look after her and enable her to live a full part in society. By all accounts, it's not a great plan. And I'm sure today, if one of our friends came up to us and said, hey, do you know what I'm thinking of doing? I'm thinking of luring my father-in-law to sleep with me. What do you think? We might be a little bit cautious before we encourage them to follow this plan. But, you know, here we are. We're in the middle of a saga, in the middle of a series of related, mainly negative events. And Tamar is a little bit desperate. To her, you see, this is a matter of life and death. There's no one to look after her when her father dies. What will happen to her? She will be left, reliant on the mercy of others. There's no one who will care for her when her older relatives are gone. Judah has knowingly kept his son from her out of fear of losing him, knowing that his actions in the society of that day would take away the rights of Tamar to live in the community in which she was, properly and fully. And because of his actions, she now has nothing. So she devises a plan 
to try and make things right. And by all accounts, strangely, weirdly, this plan works. It may not have been the best, most moral of plans around, but it does work because Judah, seeing Tamar dressed as a prostitute, even though he doesn't recognise who she is, he does go and sleep with her. He enables her to become pregnant. And then in payment, he gives Tamar his seal. It's a personal seal. It would have been worn around his neck. It would have been his and his alone, and it would have said things about him so people would have known that it was his. And he also gives her his staff, which again would have been personalised, so everyone would have known that it would have been his. And then he leaves, hoping to come back and get his staff and his seal back in exchange for a young goat. But of course, as with all sagas, it's not going to be as easy as that, is it? And when his friend, the Adullamite, comes to find Tamar to exchange Judah's personal items for this goat, she's gone leaving no trace that she was ever there. Three months later, in what seems to be an unrelated incident, Judah is told that Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result is now pregnant. And so in keeping with his culture and in line with the laws of his time, Judah condemns her to death. Which is when Tamar produces her trump card of Judah's staff and his seal with the seemingly innocent statement, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognise whose seal and cord and staff these are. You know, I don't know whether anyone has ever been to the maze maze in Milton if you haven't really I mean it's just around the corner I haven't been for years but I went last summer it's a very hot day in fact it was blisteringly hot and we thought we'd spend the whole day there who would do that cost so much money I think we may as well get your money's worth mightn't you and you know it's bouncy castles and all that but of course then there's the maze And um, we all decided we were going to go in the maze. I was there with the boys and my friend Tracy and her son. And we were there. We said, we'll all go in the maze after lunch. We had our lunch. We put all our stuff away. We hid it under a bench because no one's going to find all your stuff there. And we decided to go in the maze. We're only going to be a little while because it's just a maze. So we set off. We have two maps. We've got a maze. We've got maps. What could possibly go wrong? Part way round, I'm not paying any attention, I'm just like chatting and wondering after. Part way round, Joshua says, I'm bored, mummy, I want to go a different way, and walks off. So I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold the phone, uh, hang on. And uh, then I said, well, you can't go on your own. He said, well, I know where I'm going, I've got the map. I'm like, okay, and you're six, but that's okay. So I said I'd go with him. So Joshua and I go one way. Tracy and the other boys go the other. Part way along our way, Joshua turns to me and said, Mommy, I don't know where we are. Well, I've not been paying attention, because he had the map. So he hands me the map, and I'm like, I haven't got a clue. I don't know where we are. So I'm wandering around. It's really hot. We don't have any water. And I'm not ashamed to say that I start to panic. I'm thinking, I'm going to die in here. I'm going to die in the maze maze in Milton. No one will ever find my body until they chop it down. 
I started, it, was, it was getting out of hand. And I'm wandering around, and Josh was going, we need to go this way, we need to go this way, where are we, where are we? And I'm like, I, don't, I just don't know, it's fine, it's fine, we're going to be fine. Then Joshua picks up some corn and cuts his hand open, and I'm like, it's okay, I've got nothing. Now there's bleeding. People always die when there's bleeding and no water and heat. So I devise a plan. I'm in the middle of a saga. I devise a plan. It's not a great plan. In fact, I don't think it was even a plan, but my plan is this. Every time I hear voices, I start to go, Tracy, Tracy, is that you? That's my plan. (laughs) So we're wandering around the maze. Tracy, oh no, you're a man, it's okay. Tracy, Tracy, nothing. After about 10 minutes, I hear a noise, people. Tracy, Tracy, is that you? Yes, Kate, it's me. I'm like, by the grace of God, I've been rescued from the maze maze. Tracy and I link up. Of course, Tracy knows the way. She's got a map and she's been paying attention. And we find our way out. Isn't that amazing? I could have been dead in there. But no, I'm here today to share it with you. Because, you know, in the middle of a messy situation... Whether it be major or rather trivial, like the maze maze was, when things become messy and life takes a turn that you're not expecting, we sometimes come up with a plan, or the beginnings of a plan, that's not really that great. And sometimes it isn't even right. But sometimes God, in his grace, makes it work. And so when Tamar produces Judah's staff and seal and confronts him with his wrongs. Not the fact that he has slept with her, but the fact that he has withheld his son from her years ago. Judah, against all cultural norms, against all you would expect from a man of his time, recognises what he has done. He recognises the life that he has inflicted on her because of his fear. And instead of condemning her to death, as was his right, as would have been expected, he finally realises and he saves her life. And not only does he save her life, but he saves the lives of her unborn babies. And he continues the line of Jesus, of which he and Tamar are a part in the beginning of the book of Matthew. And you know, when we look at the world around us today and we see saga upon saga upon saga, and that's not being dramatic, that's the world in which we live. It can be so easy to feel that we need to stand in judgment on what we see before us, to stand in judgment on ourselves and to stand in judgment on those around us. And yet here the story of Tamar and Judah, here in this saga that is played out before us in the Bible, despite the misuse of sex, despite the moral failings, despite the lack of responsibility, despite the blackmail and the lies and the fear, there is no judgment here. There is no judgment in this passage on Tamar and Judah. Tamar is not judged for her terrible plan and her deception. And Judah is not judged for his self-protection and lies that brings condemnation to someone else. In fact, at the end of this passage, both of them are vindicated. 
Because what we see in this messy saga, in this messy story, is not what is right and what is wrong. It is not morality and immorality. It is not who made the best choice with the life that they were given. But rather what we see throughout this messy saga, above everything else, is the grace of God. The grace of Almighty God, which is working in and through the mess of life. So that within this saga, we do not end up shaking our heads with despair and pointing our fingers of judgment and saying, I can't believe they did that. But instead, at the end of this story, we celebrate a life that is restored, a woman who is brought back into community, children whose lives are saved. And we catch a glimpse of true righteousness from a man who up until that point had lived his life in fear, trying to protect himself. What we see in this passage and what we celebrate at the end is the working of the grace of God in the lives of people. And you know, as we live our lives today, as we move around from saga to saga, or if we're lucky if we watch from a distance, we can either spend our whole time looking around looking at ourselves, looking at those close to us and making judgments on what we see. We can weigh up right from wrong, we can bounce between judgment and mercy and we can let our behaviour towards others be led by what we conclude is right or wrong. Or, as we move around from saga to saga, as we get involved in the mess of life, we can look to God And we can see the way that he is working in the world. We can seek to recognise what it is that God is doing in this mess. What it is that God is doing in this saga we're involved in. And instead of trying to box up his grace and keep it clean, instead of making it neat and hoping that it, it doesn't get filthy with all the mess that's around, we can hopefully see that our role as God's people is to be a means by which his grace can be seen in and among the mess of our everyday. Because as Max Lucado, I'm sure many of you have heard of him, an American Christian writer says, the meaning of life, the wasted years of life, the poor choices of life, God's answers, the mess of this world, with one word, grace. God answers the mess of this world with one word, grace. Let's pray together. So as we walk through the mess of life, may we know God's grace working in and through our lives. May we know we are loved and cherished. And may God walk with us and bless us. Amen.